Virginia Jayu is an expressive arts therapist based in Toronto, Ontario. In addition to seeing clients and running expressive therapies groups for folks with diverse abilities, she's a passionate advocate, activist, and facilitator. I know her from her impactful workshops on anti-racism and anti-oppressive practice in creative therapies. Virginia is also the vice president of the Ontario Expressive Arts Association. In our conversation, Virginia takes us on her journey through teaching and community organizing to expressive therapy. She breaks down the advantages and limitations of working digitally, what it means to challenge oppressive systems as a clinician, her passion for hip-hop music and culture, and why joy is a radical tool for healing and liberation. This is Art Therapy IRL, a show about the new reality of art therapy. I'm your host, Amelia Hutchison. Hey, Virginia, thank you for joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. So before we get started, I know because your work focuses so much on decolonizing therapeutic space and liberation healing, let's begin with just acknowledging the land we're on. Would you like to go first? Yeah, perhaps I can just bring our attention to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, who have provided us with 94 calls to action. And I see these as tangible ways for us to really consider um, perspectives and recommendations from Indigenous populations and peoples. So that's something that I highly recommend um, bringing into the workplace. I personally do that as well um, in the capacities that we can, specifically under health. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for, for bringing that into this conversation at the forefront. I'll link that in the show notes. So anybody listening who wants access to that PDF can find it there. Thank you. So a way I like to begin is by hearing a little bit about why art or any creative act and how that became important to you. What kind of creator are you and what would the origin story of your creative practice be? I am definitely an experiential um, and experimental type of artist. My creative journey really started off at a very young age, coming from a low resource community and not really having access to a lot of programming. Um, It was really up to me to engage in creative expression. And because we didn't have a lot of toys and a lot of things to play with, I literally was playing with what I had. Um, And I would say that that's sort of where that creative Um, bud, if I may say, started to bloom a little bit. And I would say what really helped it bloom even more was, and this is a very distinctive memory I have as a child, a childhood memory, Um, specifically, I believe in grade six, there was a school play that was happening. And just a little context, Virginia in grade six was quite shy, was very quiet, kept to myself. I was fiery in my own ways, but I was nevertheless quite shy, especially speaking in public. And this play came along and I was casted as Jack from Jack and the Beanstalk. And a really cool thing about this play is that it was written by my teacher, my grade six teacher, and I was casted as Jack and the whole play was written in rhyme. Mm. So it was, there was a lot of rhyming involved and in my specific role, I had to do a rap. At this point, I had no idea what, like I, I knew of rap, but I definitely didn't practice it. And it really required a level of bravery that I did not have. So during that process of getting into my role, I actually had a classmate up here who who was really into rap music and really mentored me into performing. And I would say that the moment um, 
I performed on stage in front of my family, friends, and peers, and I was able to deliver that rap was when I really came into a sense of what I call empowerment, Mm. that I knew that I could do something that was extremely difficult to imagine myself doing, that I not only can do it, I can do it very well. And I enjoyed it. So I would say that through rhymes um, and through the resources that I had around me really opened up my eyes to the different ways that I can connect and assert myself in my community. Who am I? So that kind of gave me a voice and it helped shape and develop my ideas of where I want to go in the future. So rhyme, uh, rhythmic poetry is still a very big piece of my life and hip hop certainly was something that raised me. So what was the line between this moment of discovering that expressing yourself with rhyme and with rap and hip hop? How did you get from that point to becoming an expressive therapist? That's a long journey, but I would say that it really came from the consistency in my involvement with this culture and all these art forms that hip hop culture can offer us. Each element I've dove into in a little bit, I certainly won't call myself an expert in any of the elements, but I am a huge fan of all of them. Um, And I think it's just the consistency of being introduced to different ways of doing dance, of different Mm -hmm. ways of making sound with my voice, of working, of storytelling, different ways of playing instruments such as turntablism. I think my my consistent involvement and awe of hip hop culture has kept me in the loop of being creative. Now, in terms of how it's evolved into expressive arts therapy, it really took many, you know, if I could use the metaphor of being on a bus, there was many bus stops for me. You know, one of them was community facilitating. I've been a community facilitator for many, many years now, working with a lot of local and international arts-based organizations in supporting their community uh, with change and transformation using the arts. And then I, you know, this bus that I'm on right now, I stopped at that. Um, now the next stop was um, one of my first professional endeavors of being an elementary school teacher. And in that role, I tried to really bring in the arts as much as I could. And what I've recognized is when I was in an artful space, the faces, the spirit of the people that I was in front of, all of a sudden shifted a little bit. I saw a different part of my students that I never saw in non-creative spaces. And that really was just grounding for me and knowing that not only is the arts enjoyable and for me made a profound difference, it also helps people develop on on many different levels, on not just an academic, but like um, from the perspective of the teacher. It really helps with the language piece. It really helps with um, the communication piece, uh, delivery, as well as, commun- as well as connecting with others. So again, that bus stop, stopping at the elementary school, being an elementary school teacher, I was affirmed that the arts can make profound differences. And I remember, you know, and during that time in my life, I was facilitating a lot. And I remember distinctively at one of my workshops, a person came up to me and asked me if I was an art therapist. At that point, I I didn't know what to say because I've never even heard of it. I I questioned myself. I was like, what is this field, this art therapy? I was intrigued. So what I did was I did further research and really learning more about what it was. And as I was reading up documents, um, papers, and potential institutes and schools that I can attend to learn more about how art can be used in a therapeutic way, I felt 
a level of connection that I haven't felt in a very long time. And that connection, I think I will use the word belongingness. Mm. I felt like I belonged in that field. You know, I believe in change. I believe in transformation. I believe in using the arts in ways of telling our stories. And I had this growing piece of me that wanted for change. Like, okay, so after we tell the story, what comes next? And I think that that's where that training came in, um, in really understanding the therapeutic aspects, not just in the doing, but also in the knowing, um, not just in our minds, but also in our bodies and our hands and our, our eyes. Well, it's like you've intuitively been doing the work of art and expressive therapy all along for yourself and for your students and having this name to, to put the work under. It's like, okay, that's it. That's where the belonging is. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly it. Mm-hmm. And I love that you say, like, after we tell the story, what comes next? For me, that really hits at what the therapy piece is and what the role of the art or the expressive therapist is in terms of helping someone who's had this creative experience, then harvest it for whatever wisdom or, or juice is there. Yes. Yes. I love the word harvest. Mm-hmm. That's, that's essentially a lot of the work that we do, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I, I view the work that we do. So yes. And then crystallizing some of the things that we've harvest. And, and I love, I love those pieces about this work. Well, let's talk about the idea of crystallizing because this is kind of one of the big differences between art therapy and expressive therapy. Most of the people I talk with on this show are art therapists and it's a little bit different from what an expressive therapist does. Can you speak a little bit to how an expressive therapist might move between modalities in order to crystallize something and what that mm. means? I, I love the idea and I love the, the, the word modality, the modalities that you've chosen. And I want to share this just offering a little bit of context first in that, you know, I spent the last few years of my life working very closely with a colleague that I respect very deeply who is and identifies as an art therapist. So I will first start off by saying that I think we have much more parallels and similarities than we do of differences. But one thing that I think um, based on the work and the information we've shared, we've presented together, that I can name some of the differences would be the intermodal approach that expressive arts therapy takes. And my understanding is in art therapy, you know, there is a welcoming of different types of art forms. Um, But in expressive arts therapy, we do have an approach called intermodal approach, which is in a session, a a client may move from one art modality to the next one if they choose to do so. And we really encourage that to really deepen that creative expression and that, if I may use the word story, to kind of give it more context. So I would say that that would probably be one of the the differing um, approaches that we take. Um, and, and again, that's not to say that art therapists don't do that. I personally am not one, um, but I do work closely with one to know that she certainly welcomes other art forms. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? It does. Like this is a question I've been trying to tease into for a while because they feel so similar. Um, I actually spoke with Marcus Alexander earlier and his explanation was a little bit about kind of the history, like art therapy comes from like a psychodynamic approach. It's something Freud used. It kind of comes from one realm of psychology, whereas expressive therapy historically comes from artists. And now we're at this meeting point in, in our field where there's a lot of similarity. Um, perhaps art therapy focuses more on using one modality and expressive therapy really leans into the flowing between different ones. But the more and more I interact with expressive therapists, the closer our work really does feel. Mm-hmm. 
And, I, and I'm, I'm glad you say that. And I, I feel a little hesitant in saying what art therapists don't do because mm-hmm. I know that, you know, we're all intersect. Uh, we're, we, we have many different intersectionalities and even our approaches. You know, we know that through our training, we, we might come from a specific discipline, but it's ongoing education. We're mm-hmm. constantly, you know, taking new courses, understanding new ways, our new methodologies, perhaps even new theories that are being, you know, um, analyzed and reflected upon right now. Again, the more time I spend in the creative therapies world, connecting with different types of creative therapists, like art therapists, dance therapists, music therapists, I'm really finding this red thread, if I can call that our, mm. our, our commonality. And I think that for me, it's important to really keep that in mind in building relationship amongst our community members so that we can really pull on each other's strength. Of course, recognizing our differences is just as important. So we know, you know, in times where if I'm not able to, let's say, step up to the plate for certain things that you're able to, or this other community member is able to. So um, yeah, there definitely are many parallels and also big up to Marcus. He was one of my teachers. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's been one of my um, most influential facilitators as well. And it's no surprise that a lot of people who end up in conversation here have some kind of connection with that or... Um, and the passion is real with him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's real for all of us. And I think that that's really what would differentiate, even if we go to the same institutes, have similar backgrounds in education. That really is what sets my, my, my understanding is that's what sets us apart from each other, even within the same discipline, even within the same field. You know, it's our personalities, it's our lived experience, it's our goals, our values that really come into play that can really, you know, shift some of our perspective and how we deliver the work that we do. You know, I think there's this like common beautiful thread, like you're saying, of everyone who is attracted to this field knows on a cellular level that being in touch with the creative process is inherently healing. There's so many different ways and kind of channels to get there, but at its core, it feels like what's common between all of these kinds of professionals is just this deep respect, reverence, and hope that art or any kind of creative expression is the thing that heals or creates space for healing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, anybody that you you speak to, I imagine, because anybody that I speak to that's in our field all have a personal story Mm -hmm. of how the arts has impacted them personally, not necessarily just reading something and feeling resonance toward it. They have their own personal stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, I think that that really helps fuel the work that we do, you know, in times where for myself, I'll speak for myself in times where, you know, sometimes I might feel stuckness or a little apprehension of how my future can look like. What I find to be useful is anchoring myself in that memory of what worked for me and why am I doing this? And when I revisit my past story of little Virginia in grade six being so shy and now being able to stand and be brave, that fuels me because I think, hey, if it worked for me, it might work for someone else. And whoever that person is, you know, they deserve a space to explore something that's, you know, non-traditional um, in a therapeutic sense. Yeah, and I think that's really what drove me to want to do further research on hip hop. Um, and writing my thesis on empowerment through hip hop, drawing those parallels, having dialogue and discussions with other therapists and practitioners about the about the viable art forms that hip hop inherently comes with. Well, I can just see it on your face. There's this well of passion. And I, I want to dig a bit more into that because hip hop culture and music is not one that I'm very familiar with. So I'm a complete novice. I would just love to know what do you love about hip hop? What just lights you up to think about? so many things. Where should we start? Um, First, imagination, right? Mm -hmm. We know, for for me, I will say that in hip-hop culture and a lot of the different elements, 
a lot of people adapt to aliases, AKAs, you know, whether you're B-girl this, or maybe you're MC that, or you're DJ this, your graffiti name, you have a different name. So when we talk about taking on, and even the, the topic of archetypes, right? Mm. We think about these, like, these characters almost, uh, and that's no disrespect to the characters that we take on because in these spaces, we're allowed to practice bravado. I'm allowed to be aggressive in the ways that I want to. And it's contained in an art form, right? Whereas perhaps in regular life as a professional Virginia, I might not be able to go in a space and share that level of bravado or braveness in the ways that I would in, um, for example, through rhyme. I would say it's one of the pieces that really speak to me when it comes to hip-hop it's that bravery it's that borrowing inherent braveness that's within ourselves and pulling it out and showing it unapologetically mm. um, I would say that that one second resistance right we know hip-hop history and hip-hop culture to really be a respondent to what's happening in the communities uh, and if we're just going to go you know typical history of hip-hop Bronx 1970s there was a lot of a lot of shitty things happening people need to do something about it right either whether it's through messages um, and that's how we know through emceeing. Um, but really the root of hip hop, if we look at the history and development of this culture, it really started with peace, love, unity, and happiness, right? It's about gathering together. It's about celebrating even in times where our literal reality don't reflect the type of life that we want to live and we want to be received in. We're able to create space with this art form that has evolved into a culture that we call hip hop. So mm. I think that that's really powerful for, for people who feel disenfranchised, for folks who didn't belong in, for them to have a space and to show up and to be proud in mm. those moments. Well, I know, and in your practice, something that is really important to you is your huge passion for decolonizing clinical spaces. Mm. And I think sometimes it can be challenging for many folks to register exactly how colonialism permeates the structures we live in. Um, can you say a little bit about how you see colonial dynamics showing up in the therapy office? I'd maybe like to go back a little bit and say maybe, you know, perhaps the way I look at it is it's not necessarily how it shows up. It's me going into a space knowing that it's there. Mm. A lot of times when it comes to colonialism, it happens invisibly. It happens, it, it shapes, as you've said, a lot of the ways that we teach, the way we learn, the way we receive, the way we communicate. And it really is a part of an operating system and organizing structure that, that makes up our quote unquote Canadian culture, right? Mm -hmm. North America. I think for me going into clinical spaces, I'm thinking about the clinic that I used to work at, Trauma to Trust. You know, I go in there knowing and understanding already that we have been impacted by colonialism in many ways. So I try to think about where are some of the gaps that I'm noticing right now? Is this work truly accessible? And are we as diverse as we want to be? And then what are the follow-up questions? So for me, when I ask myself these questions, I'd like to seek um, actions that I can personally take, whether they be really big or really small, but that I do something about it. So mm -hmm. I'm not just cognitively aware of some of these dynamics that are barriers to many peoples. Um, so I, I, I'm aware of these things. So, you know, talking about accessibility, you know, at the clinic, we serve people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So when we think about accessibility, that's one of the first things that come to mind, but not just accessible physical space, such as do we have places for wheelchairs? Are there ramps available? We're also talking about languaging. Is mm. it plain language? Do people understand this? I know oftentimes folks who 
exercise or practice in clinical spaces, we, we have our own culture, our language, the word that we use, even in art therapy, in an expressive arts therapy, right? For us to say harvest, for us to use the word, you know, um, crystallize. These mean something deeply to all of us because we have an understanding of it. But then I think about folks who don't have that education and understanding of it and what does it mean for them? And when I use these words, would it make them feel incapable or incompetent in any way? Mm. So therefore the mindfulness piece is very strong for me. Again, understanding when I walk into a lot of spaces that colonialism has impacted all the spaces that I'm in, including the therapeutic clinical space, um, and my, my way of dismantling or addressing, taking action towards this uh, colonialism and how to make spaces more accessible really gets broken down into um, a few steps for me. And if you would like, I can share with you, these are the things that I consider when I do this work that I call decolonizing. Yeah, please. Something. So yeah. I really start off first with my positionality, right? So understanding who I am to relationship to the people I serve, to my environment, how did I grow up? So again, that's that sense of knowing myself and my personal story. And I think that's important for all peoples. Um, so, and also when we talk about decolonizing, this isn't just the work of non-white people. Um, I, I think for anybody who's going through this process, understanding your position is just as important. Um, many of us have dealt with adversities and oppression on many different levels and not necessarily limited to just the color of our skin. Mm -hmm. Although that is a very important piece to just understand that. So really first, I start off with understanding my positionality. This is an ongoing commitment and a daily commitment. Second one is really understanding the impacts of white supremacy and taking responsibility for some of the impacts that I have um, either contributed to or have the power to change. And I want to just reference here, if folks have the opportunity to check out the Truth and Reconciliation Commission package, um, the PDF uh, file uh, with the 94 calls to action, um, number 22 uh, really speaks to this in terms of what makes therapy, therapy, quote. But more specifically, in the recommendation, it asks us to really consider and to consult and to incorporate Indigenous healing practices and healing ways, which is something, Amelia, I don't know about you, but my training institute didn't have that teaching. You know, there mm -hmm. wasn't an, an Indigenous healing, you know, teaching. So this is something that myself, as, long as, as well as a lot of my peers, have taken the initiative independently to want to really learn about what are the, um, the, the indigenous and traditional healing ways um, for indigenous folks, as well as every other person that has their own cultural understanding of healing. Are their cultures being considered? Are their, their choices being considered? You know, we speak a lot about being client-centered, and I really think that that's a piece of the responsibility of learning and really exercising this humility as we enter this work, right? And then I also want to say ongoing education anti-oppressive education from many different people, especially from people who have come from oppressive backgrounds or who have a history um, of experience and oppression, learning from these people. So again, it's that education piece, you know, understanding, you know, the impacts not only of colonialism, but as a group of people, how does that impact live in our bodies? How mm. does it hinder our growth and our ability to connect with one another? And then uh, on top of that, how do we move forward from it? 
after we know and we've taken responsibility and we're aware of a system that we cannot single-handedly change overnight, how do we still live with this? And, you know, I think you've mentioned a little bit earlier about hope, but I really would also say that it's our ongoing education, our personal commitment that would make these changes. I think collectively, if all of us or a lot of us are on the same boat where we're committed to making a more equitable space for all peoples, to make it, um, to make our services um, more accessible to all peoples, I think that that's, that's a good place to start. Finally, I think quality supervision is so mm -hmm. important. For me, mm -hmm. I bring this work of decolonizing into my um, supervision. And how I do that is firstly, when I found my supervisor, um, who I've had for over six years now, I wanted to know where the person stands in terms of their values and their understanding. Um, she's someone that I feel very comfortable in talking about my clinical work and how I can assert my decolonizing ways um, and still hold space for the other person, right? Personally, Virginia, you know, I am very much aware of social injustices and what social justice can look like for people. And I have my values and, my, and, and where I stand when it comes to certain issues. And when I'm in a therapeutic space, I'm almost wearing a different hat. And of course, the common red thread of creating an equitable space is still there. But actually, something does change. My ability to, let's use the word tolerate, right? If I can use the word tolerate, and I use this word with a lot of humility too, that in those spaces, I'm much more able to tolerate misogynistic or racist statement than I would in a personal when I'm out in public. Mm. Um, and I think that that's the piece that, you know, and speaking to other therapists who are also really focused on decolonizing and really standing up in that education piece, like where are the moments, the teaching moments in our therapy, but still keeping our clients centered to their experience. How does that look like? And I think that that just excites me because I don't think there's one answer to that. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, Amelia, do you have any experiences with those type of differing dynamics of being the personal self and the therapist self? Oh my gosh. It just, I'm so happy you brought that up because there have been moments in my practice where you come up against something or someone has an opinion or something and you have that kind of oh, that's problematic. And then there's this moment of deciding, am I going to be my social justice self or therapist self? And then there's this calibration of like, okay, how can I hold this conversation in a way that is still aligned with my values and aligned with my mission in this work and also is making my client feel safe and not kind of making them kind of back into themselves or judged by me. It's a really fine line and a really a really graceful thing to navigate. Yeah. But I think there's ways for therapists to do both at once, to kind of hold on to the beliefs that they're building their practice around. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, communicate that in a way that makes their client feel yeah, safe to explore whatever it is that has just come up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that idea of, you know, these two sides of us, they can merge in some mm -hmm. way, you know, that we can be, you know, professional and really keeping our clients and their, their interest at the center of our work and yet still bring ourselves in. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think about, you know, that relationship being in relationship, it's not, 
you know, in terms of our success and our ability to build rapport, it's not lateral. Oh, it worked very well with this one client. So I'm going to have this skill, you know, with all the clients. And we know that that's not true. I find I'm always navigating, you know, new ways of being in relationship when I work with new people. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, coming back and I think what grounds me in those spaces is reminding myself the purpose that I serve in that space, which is in service of someone else. In that moment, how does it serve the person by me even telling my truth? And I think, you know, all of us are, are, are on that path. And I think it's actually a very healthy place to be because mm-hmm. it reminds us that we're human and that we're able to be flexible in ways. And sometimes we're not able to, and that's okay too. You know, understanding our limitations and how we work is just as important as understanding our strengths and how we work. Well, this is the beautiful thing about therapy practice. I feel like I'm a different kind of therapist for every person I show up with. And the more and more I have these conversations with people, the more I just love hearing about therapy, almost like a practice of improv, figuring out what's the thing that this person needs next, or what's going to be therapeutic for them. It's not the same thing they needed five minutes ago. It's not the same thing your client two hours ago needed. It's a practice of staying really in the moment with a person and what is going to be the right healing thing here. Yep. Amelia, I love the way you're bringing in the improv piece because Mm -hmm. one of the improv pieces I've learned, one of the first things is yes and, Mm -hmm. right? So do we bring that into practice? Like as therapists, am I willing in those spaces, even if I don't agree to say yes and, you know, accept it and then work with it? Am I able to do that? And I would say yes. You know, in practice, I've seen myself, you know, I've seen myself struggle Mm-hmm. And I've also seen myself rise above it. Well, I mean, speaking of the work you do professionally, let's talk a little bit about the kinds of services you offer. What does your expressive therapy practice look like these days? Mm-hmm. Um, I've moved all my support right now to virtual platforms. So I am currently in private practice. Um, I offer one-on-one as well as groups, and it's all done virtually. In addition to my expressive arts therapy work, I also offer trainings to organizations in anti-O, anti-racism work, empowerment-based education, um, and expressive arts therapy, mental health 101. So I I find myself trying to navigate the the digital virtual world. It's always been a part of my work, especially at the clinic. We've always offered virtual therapy to people who are not in the uh, greater Toronto area to make it more accessible. But now having that not as an option, but as the, the only option has really changed the dynamic of it. But one thing that I will name and I miss is I really miss that quality of being in person. Mm-hmm. You know, I miss like noticing or how we sit on a chair, like not just from our chest up because of our virtual platform, but really noticing these things. Also the sound of art making, you know, cutting or coloring those little things that I can't really pick up on video camera and on limitation of the sound. I really miss those elements. I, I will say though, that I am very grateful to still be in a position at least to continue doing this work when I know so many people are struggling out here. If people are listening and you're struggling, I, I want to tell you, I hear you. I see your pain. I hope that things do change soon mm-hmm. for, for folks who find themselves in that position. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you named the things that you miss. I think in so many of these conversations, uh, it's easy to jump to all the things that are kind of amazing about working online, the accessibility. There's some pretty cool benefits to working digitally, but yeah, it also is really hard to not have that almost indescribable in-person experience. Totally. 
Totally. Mm-hmm. And you know, even the interaction, I find that to be quite different too, because usually in the, in the space that I have in the studio, we have all the art materials provided. Whereas when we're working with people on a one-on-one, we're really working with what the person has, right? So if I'm working with someone and literally they don't have the funds to buy art materials and all they have is the back of a newspaper and a pen, that's what we're going to work with. So mm-hmm. when we talk about being resource oriented, when we talk about being creative in our work, and finding new ways of doing old things. That's also another piece of the challenge that's in there, right? Like, I think that that's why I really give respect to our fields in creative therapies, because for the most part, many of us are able to still do the work online without extravagant, expensive, or a lot of materials. Also, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, although, you know, moving on a virtual platform can be very beneficial and is very good for, for, for many reasons, also, you know, that that also poses as in, um, as a limitation for many other people. You know, mm. there's folks that I used to support at the clinic that I'm no longer able to support because they either don't have access to a device, um, electronics, or even internet or a place to have these sessions. So I don't want to take those things for granted. And I do want to acknowledge that there are still a lot of people out here that I know are looking for services and fortunately are not receiving it because of the limitations of their circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an important thing to bring up. Like having, you know, a phone or a computer is is no small thing. And there are some very real barriers to participating in in any kind of therapy. How do you find you show up differently as a facilitator when you're online? You know what I I think that this question will probably be best if we ask the people that see me online. Yeah. Usually in person, I can sense when a person's finished. I may check in to just ask, are you finished? But usually I sense it. But on video camera, I find it sometimes hard to know if a person's finished talking or if they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I do say when I do anything online um, is that I am still working on being okay with like long pauses. And I know mm. that virtual platforms, sometimes there's going to be those. So I just want to put it out there that, you know, I might jump in just to, just to talk, but I am aware that, you know, it, it, it does operate differently and space does sound and especially internet connection, right? If one person's lagging, we don't, mm. do I talk? Do I wait till, so I think it's just this constant like calibrating of what works, what doesn't work. Um, and then being, being compassionate for times that it doesn't work. You know, and maybe we can talk about it and say, these are things that happen. So mm-hmm. just naming, this is what's hard. This is what we're limited with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I saw you speak along with your amazing co-facilitator, Amanda G at the last uh, Canadian Art Therapy Association conference. And you both did just a wonderful presentation on an online group that you'd facilitated. Mm-hmm. There was a quote in there and I might have gotten this wrong. Um, so correct me if I've, I've misquoted, but it was rediscovering joy is the essence of healing for those with disabilities joy is pride's triumph over trauma is that correct mm, yes david hingsberger okay that. so it just it stuck with me so much and especially in this moment where sometimes joy can feel like a limited limited commodity why is it so important to be tapping into joy at this kind of cultural and historical moment I think it's, it's not only important, I think it's necessary. Mm. I think for me, it's also about survival because mm. it's about, for me, waking up the next day, wanting to wake up the next day, mm. knowing that there's so much compounding stress happening in our world, in the global community, as well as our local communities, right? So we're understanding our health 
the anxiety that comes from not knowing what's actually happening to everybody's health. So we have that. We have the injustices, the police brutality that's happening. We have all these important movements that are really, I mean, that have always been here, but are getting much more spotlight now, you know? So there's, there's so many things happening, um, as well as, you know, even the work that we do. And let me just take it personal, um, to a personal note that's, you know, moving to virtual platforms, knowing the people that I used to support, I cannot support because of this limitation. There's so much compounding stress that for me, joy and hope, all those words are necessary for me not to sink. I will be stuck in this circular thought and I'll be dwindling down and I might just burn out. Um, but for me to think and activate my imagination, because hope for me is activating my imagination in seeing something that is not here now. So perhaps in this moment, I feel stuck. I feel like a lot of shit is going down in my community that I can't literally do anything about that would make profound differences, right? What helps me wake up the next day is for me to try to imagine that um, what I do is impactful, maybe not on a global level, um, maybe not even in a huge community level, but on a personal one-on-one -on -one level, I'm doing my mm -hmm. part. And to be reminded of some of the things that it can, that can result from some of the efforts that we've been putting in, whether it's talking about this openly with you, you know, I'm thinking about our conversation discussion today, right now, this for me is hope filled. And the reason why is we're having an honest discussion about not only, you know, our, my experience in this field, but also we're talking about how to decolonize spaces and what that means for each one of us. We're finally opening up to having conversations about things that are taboo and could be sensitive to some people and talking about. So this gives me hope because we're starting a dialogue. And I imagine that once these words leave our mouth and once these words in this clip leaves this computer, it's going to reach other ears and folks are going to have to decide for themselves. We're planting a seed. So mm. whether it goes or not, the truth is the earth now holds this one seed that you and I have created. And I think metaphorically, that's how I look at, you know, the, what brings me that hope and joy and why I think it's important to instill that even within ourselves so that tomorrow can be bearable for me, you know, because mm. sometimes it's just so heavy. I need some hope. Well, and I'm so happy, first of all, that metaphor of the seed just feels perfect. And I'm happy you speak to it, not only in terms of just a person who consumes therapy or participates in therapy, but as, as helping professionals, what it's taking for us to, to show up to work in, in the midst of all this, it really does feel essential to be engaging in joy, hope, and play practices to kind of hold that light so that we can also be holding the outer frame when we facilitate for other people. Oh yeah, totally. Like I, and especially with play, right? I remember, mm -hmm. re, I, I mean, I've adapted this to a philosophy, but I remember like somewhere along the line learning that play is about giving up control. Mm -hmm. That idea just blew my mind because there's so much need for me to be in control, you know, and I think there's so much need for the ego to know what's happening, that we need to just chew on something. Even if it's not true, we just need to know what's up for now, just to hold space, you know, just to hold on something that we know what's going on. Um, so yeah, play is extremely crucial in my life. And that when I have play, then I'm giving myself permission to not know what's going on and to enjoy not knowing, mm. uh, which is quite rare for me. Um, but it's, <laughs> something that I invite into my life as much as possible. It really helps me break from circular thought, you know? Um, it gives me a moment to, and I think in a lot of the philosophies and creative therapies, we call it decentering. Mm. And I think hope and, and joy and all that is decentering because for that moment, 
I'm not focused and I'm not centralized on what my problem, my crisis, my adversity is. In that moment, I'm actually in a relationship with a different part of me or something else. And I'm not saying that that problem adversity will go away, but when we go back to it, we actually perhaps can build a different type of relationship with it. You know, uh, Amelia, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pull this back because I love referencing and I just wanna give praise where it's due. Marcus, um, taking his course, he mentioned something that was profound for me. I've also included this in my, in my thesis. He said this one thing that he, he broke down his idea of ordinary, unordinary, and extraordinary. That when we go into therapy, we come as our ordinary self. And ordinary is not lacking luster. It's just who we are. And when we leave, the same issues that we came in with somehow is a little bit less or a little bit different. So we call that unordinary because it's no longer exactly the same thing. Even if we can, you know, historically name it to be, yeah, this thing happened and it still happened, but our relationship to what happened changes in that extraordinary process. I think that coming back to that quote that Dave said about discovering and rediscovering this piece of joy, I think is extremely important and really speaks to the decolonizing clinical spaces piece, especially when working with people with disabilities, because mm -hmm. historically, um, folks with disabilities, intellectual developmental disabilities were deemed to not benefit. And I use this in quotation. Um, mm -hmm. our, a lot of people did not see therapy as a beneficial intervention for any of the traumas they've experienced because of their quote unquote lack of cognitive awareness or intelligence. Um, so we know that that's not true. So what are some different ways? So for, for some folks who are non-traditional communicators that don't talk, we know traditional talk therapy certainly won't work with these people. So what has been a proven um, intervention that has been very useful? Creative therapies. Mm -hmm. you know, we know this through a lot. You know, when we have language barriers, we can communicate in so many different ways. And I think, you know, both of us being in creative therapies really understand the dynamics of communication much more than just verbal expression. So uh, why am I sharing this? Uh, speaking about the accessibility piece, and I really think that rediscovering joy in moments of healing doesn't necessarily always have to be talking about it. It doesn't have to always be about recreating a new narrative and finding a solution. I see therapy as also a moment of experiencing that you are a whole person in that, that you are respected in this space and that you can make decisions and those decisions are going to be all right. Mm. You know, we can start there. And I think that working with the people that I have in the clinic, that's one thing that I really have learned that it doesn't always have to be, you know, a huge moment of a, a cathartic experience. It doesn't always have to be for it to be impactful and powerful and healing. Right. The therapy can be as simple. And I use the word simple, not lightly, but it can be as right. um, essential as there's been space created and the people present are able to feel joy, acceptance, connection. Like just that in itself is perfect therapy. And tell me that's not an act of decolonizing. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes when it comes to healthcare, we're health centered, right? So even when, when it comes to therapy, there's medical models. I think creative therapies in itself is already an act of decolonizing because we're not technically, I mean, we, um, and I'm not saying folks aren't doing medical, clinical, serious, you know, scientifically proven database work. Um, what I'm saying is that there also seems to be an essence and, and a, a dance with this world of arts and philosophy and existentialism, you know, of being like, how about the things that we can't see? How about the things that we can't measure? Are those of quality? 
And I think we can all say yes, you know, because there are things that we can't describe that we feel. So um, for us to be in spaces, for me to be in a space and to be trusted with stories and to exercise this seriously important work, I feel really, really privileged and very lucky to be trusted in these spaces. In that same in that same vein, um, I'm curious, what would your biggest hope for 2021 be? I would say that my hope is to feel more connected mm. to my greater community. And I'm going to say that this hope that I'm speaking from right now is the, the expressive arts therapist hoping for a more united and connected community within the creative therapies world that I know that each one of us who exercise creative creativity and arts for positive change and transformation, we're all doing important work and I wanna continue learning. I wanna be able to support those who are in line. I want to communicate more with people from our community, um, really in hopes of building a solid, like uh, a cross-racial piece of solidarity. You know, I want to be able to go into this work knowing and trusting that there are other people who are also working toward, you know, change and transformation in ways that I respect. And I want to connect with those people. So I'm hoping for 2021 to be much more connected in the creative therapies world and to connect with individuals and reach out um, and to build meaningful relationships. Beautiful. How about you, Amelia? What's your, what's your wish for 2021? My hope is to keep holding the spark. I think it's to stay grounded enough in my own practice that it's never, I'm never far away from that remembering piece of, right, the art is the magic. And I know, I know I feel close to myself and I know I feel close to my own healing process when I am in touch with, with my creative practice and to stay with that enough that it's, it's easy to keep sharing and that I just am, am overflowing with energy for my clients, for my community, for the groups I run, that I can just continue to uh, have a very full well of vibrancy and creative energy as we face whatever it is we're going to face. Right. Mm -hmm. I wish that for you too, Amelia. <laughs> All right. So that this conversation has just been so energetic. I want to use the word vibrant again. So beautiful. I'm so excited about the ways you've brought up the importance of imagination and resistance. If people want to reach out or want to work with you or want more information on expressive therapies, where can people find you? Please come visit me on my website. It's www.artstherapy.ca. Mm -hmm. And I'll send a link to that in the show notes that will be included with this episode. Yes, please. Any feedback is also welcomed. I'd love to hear thoughts, um, curiosities, anything that you're willing to share. Again, I'm looking to connect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Virginia. Thank you so much, Amelia. Art Therapy IRL is a capstone project in support of graduation requirements for the Kootenai Art Therapy Institute. You can find links to Virginia's work and social media in the program notes. You can also find a PDF of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 94 Calls to Action. Special and heartfelt thanks to Monica Carpendale, Millie Cumming, Nicole Libian, and Lisa Heisler. Studio space and technical support have been generously provided by the Knott family. Theme music was mixed by Mina Hebert. 
project supervision by Nicole Libian. This project is written and recorded on traditional unceded territory. My deepest gratitude to all ancestors and keepers of this land. 